Hello. Hello. We're Hello, on. Julie. This is so weird because I'm looking at you like in person. We're finally back <laughs> on the mic. <laughs> we have no screens in front of us and there's no time delay. <laughs> I know. We stepped out of Zoom land back into the real world. Ooh, how are you finding the real world? Oh, it's great. It's vivid, Julie. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is. And especially here at the Canberra Environment Centre with all the plants growing. Yes, we're back here at the Canberra Environment Centre. Everything kept growing while Amazing. we weren't here. Thanks <laughs> as it to tends to do. <laughs> <laughs> yup, yup. Um, and yeah, we had to do the last couple over Zoom because we've been in lockdown. So we thought let's take the opportunity to interview someone we wouldn't normally get to sit down with. And so we crossed an ocean. Woo! Gone <laughs> further afield than Canberra. <laughs> down to Tasmania, uh, where Hannah Maloney of Good Life Permaculture resides and does her great work. And tell me about Hannah, because I wasn't overly familiar with Hannah Maloney before you suggested her, but you were super keen. Yep, I'm a fan. Yep. Um, Good Life Permaculture is her business that she set up. It's a permaculture education business where she does permaculture designs for people, but also she's a living example, in my opinion, of how to live a, a life with intent, um, a good life as her book is called. So she's written a book recently called The Good Life. She presents on Gardening Australia where you get to see into her wonderful yard, which she tells us is only half an acre. They're just outside of Hobart where she grows a hell of a lot of food, has goats um, and all the rest as you'll hear. But um, yeah, just... Um, a blueprint for living the good life, I guess, as her book says. I, I, I found her book. Um, I managed to get her book a couple of days before we interviewed her <clears throat> and spent like a Sunday afternoon reading through it and loved it. Like it's just – it's so practical, hands-on, easy to understand. But one thing that totally blew my mind – and she'll talk about this in the interview, is the concept of permaculture. Like to me, I'd always just associated permaculture with horticulture. Like I just went, oh, it's just like you grow plants. That's what permaculture is. But it's not. It's so much bigger than that. That's right. It's a whole philosophy about how to live your life and um, live in a conscious way. And she's a big uh, pusher of us addressing the climate emergency. She doesn't stop talking about it um, even when hope feels lost as, a, as this yeah. last week in Australia. But um, she's all about hope and all about being an agent for change. And she's an activist at heart, as we'll find out. Um, I was really excited to hear about what she would do if she was president of the world, as yeah. we asked her. Yeah, questions. totally, totally. Um, and to find out who her environmental heroes are. So stick around to the end for those questions. I think she's just... Um you know, even though it was over Zoom, she just had such a generous spirit. Like yeah. just such a lovely, calm, wise approach to talking to us. Like yeah. it was just, it was wonderful. And one thing, um, one of my kids came in early on because she wanted to just quickly meet Hannah and say hello because she'd also looked at her book and um, one of like my little child has since gone off and done a whole permaculture design for our oh, house wow. and wants to rip up some tiles and is not happy because we don't have enough plants growing and <laughs> why can't we get goats and so like, I think you know you talk about an inspiring person yep. like this is totally inspiring the next generation to yep. go you know what this is the way we want to live our life. It's awesome. With goats. I want to go to Tasmania <laughs> <laughs> with the goats. All right. Well, let's bring our conversation with Hannah Maloney. Let's do it. Local environment heroes, saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily. Hannah, we have Hannah Maloney with us. Hi, Hannah. How are you going? Hello. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're our first... Um, I'm going to say overseas, international almost guest, <laughs> in that you are in Hobart. 
I am overseas, Nipaluna Hobart, coming to you from Lewin in the country. Yeah. Thanks for beaming me into Canberra. <laughs> no worries. Um, our first question, just to get things going straight off the bat, um, how many carrots a day do you eat? I wanted Ooh. to ask because your book says between one and four. And can you tell me what type of carrot is your favourite? Oh, great question. So, um, <laughs> Currently, my favourite is probably the Chantenay carrot, which is a French variety. It's, it's quite um, a fatter, shorter carrot, and it's nice and easy to grow, and it's delicious. Like, all carrots are delicious. And, um, well, we, down here, we last week I just um, pulled out maybe a few hundred carrots. So I had to eat, like, maybe had to up my daily intake. Wow. <laughs> maybe eating 10 a day, and I, and I gave most of them away to our friends and community because you can't eat that many carrots. <laughs> No, you really can't. No. You might go orange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, can you ever eat too many carrots? Well, um, yeah, so. like there is, a, there is a practicality about like how much food do you really need to eat? And so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, our usual opening question that we ask all our guests, Hannah, is has there been a defining moment in your life when you've looked at the world and thought something needs to change now? Oh, there's been quite a few of those moments, Ryan. <laughs> I think, um, oh, look, the first one that's coming to my mind is being a young teenager. I grew up in Meenjin in Brisbane in a, a really vibrant suburb called Kurilpa, which is in West End, and it's beautifully multicultural, really diverse. And when I grew up there in the 80s and 90s, it's quite low socioeconomic area. So um, lots of artists, lots of um know poor families or, or just you know families that's doing their thing which is which is so fun for us and uh, there's also a beautifully strong Aboriginal um, uh, community in that in that area as well and some of my early memories unfortunately are of uh, white policemen hassling the local Aboriginal crew and just going hang on a minute like that's what is going on here and being really upset by that yeah that's my first memory that pops to my mind and, and I guess led to me questioning uh, everything socially and environmentally, yeah. Yeah, that's a, a big one. Yeah, I think um, growing up in the multicultural community that I did, I, uh, there's a lot of things you take for granted. What it, whatever your normal is is just normal for you. And growing up um, in, in my household as well as quite a political household, so my parents are very involved in Aboriginal community um, throughout Australia and, of course, where we lived as well. So I had an understanding of uh, social justice issues and how mm. we are living on unceded Aboriginal land in Australia. And so um, I guess I was primed as a young person to question the status quo. And in that particular example I gave um, around policemen um, hassling local Aboriginal people, I was like, That's, that doesn't feel right. Um, what's happening here? And I would have been under 10, you know, like a little person um, and uh, like how do we move forward in this, how do we relate to authority figures and authority organisations when it does not feel okay, doesn't feel safe and it looks like they're perpetuating a really um, detrimental way of being in the world, yeah. Is that what sparked your interest in, in becoming an activist? Yeah, I think, oh, definitely. There's like an underlying feeling, and I write about this in my book, is like why does so much in our world feel so wrong? And that that thought very much led to me having an activist life and because 
Um, I'm very uninterested in perpetuating the status quo and like we have to change business as usual and that's in every realm of our world and lives, socially and economically, environmentally, everything. Um, so I think though that I think a beautiful thing my parents gave us is that skill of critical thinking where it's okay to question things um, and it's okay to challenge the status quo and explore other ways of thinking and living and being in the world. Um, I think that's the best thing we can give our young people is like think critically, keep questioning, don't just accept what's being thrown in your face because a lot of it is not actually okay. Yeah. I was going to ask that question actually about then given that's your experience and that's how you were brought up, um, <clears throat> do you think how important is it that, you know, for all children to have that variety of experience and exposure to new ideas and different ways and seeing the world from a totally different perspective as opposed to just growing up in the same place and not necessarily having that wide range of experience? Like that must be really central to growing good humans yeah I think you know ideally that would be wonderful but I'm not I think for most people it may not be possible to you know obviously we're in COVID times you can't travel or move around as much as you might like to but even without that um, COVID lens on things I think a lot of people don't have the privilege to move around or or are so privileged they live in a very small bubble that doesn't expose them to anything in particular except their own little bubble world um, but saying that, I think our education system and the broader communities that we live in have wonderful opportunities to expose us to different ways of thinking, living and being in the world. So I, I keep coming back to encourage that curiosity in our young people, even if you can't geographically move around, uh, but you, we can think about things critically and we can keep questioning things and expose ourselves to things. And if you happen to be a parent or um, and have young children in your life, in your friendship circles, you've got a beautiful opportunity just to help um, foster that spark in young people. I think I know that growing up I definitely felt like that wasn't encouraged in us in our educational system. It was like, no, no, just accept what we're telling you. There's no time for questioning. And so that, you know, trying to break that down in, in our, you know, whether it's in school, in the community, in, in everywhere, it's like, we need to have these free-flowing conversations that open up all of our brains to how things could be, yeah. A lot of people will know you because you've been beamed into televisions on Gardening Australia. Can you talk to us a bit about where activism meets gardening? Oh, mate, the two, like, best friends. <laughs> so, well, look, you know, um, oh, activism is everything, firstly. Like, it can be in, it can be in an office cubicle, it can be in the farm, it can be in the kitchen, you know. There's activism for every context, every person. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so for me, I grew up in a herb nursery, so I'm very much, I learned a lot by osmosis and I've, um, I've always been drawn to gardens and farming. And as a young adult, I quickly, I guess, immersed myself in things like permaculture and did a lot of learning around our, our food system, our conventional food system locally and globally and, and how it's a bit broken. It's, it's maybe a lot broken <laughs> um, and how, uh, if, how we treat our landscapes and the people who manage them is central to having a healthy world. And that's about, um, it comes down to things like food sovereignty, which um, people might not be aware of. They may have heard about food security, but food sovereignty takes that 10 steps further. It's about, yes, we need to make sure people can have access to food, but we need to make sure we 
treat the farmers and the land stewards who are um, managing everything with huge respect and utmost um, respect because they are so important and make sure they have rights, the rights that where they're not controlled by multinational companies and they can look after waterways and soil health properly, all the things. So I think um, for me, gardening, farming, land management is highly political because it has to be. You can't just vague out from how these systems are being managed um, in a, on the whole, they're not being managed well and they are crippling farmers uh, you know, internationally with debt or with um, being forced into contracts or using certain chemicals. There's, there's a whole can of worms to open there. Um, so for me, gardening, uh, it was it's like, wow, if we can get land management right, and I say that in inverted commas, um, we can get so many things right. The ripple, the flow-on effects are huge and wildly impactful. So permaculture, um, so maybe explain to our listeners the concept of permaculture because it's way more than gardening, It's which I really yeah. did not realise until I started investigating this properly a few weeks ago and went, wow, like it's all about being one with nature, hey? Yeah, so um, permaculture was developed in Luchawuta, Tasmania, where I'm living, um, by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. And it's a design framework and with a set of uh, three ethics, earth care, people care and fair share, and a dozen design principles, which act like a checklist to guide you in the design process. It's most commonly associated with gardening and farming. Um, absolutely, it's a, a big part of permaculture. But there's a number of categories that you can apply the permaculture design framework to, which includes building design, um, education and culture, tools and technology, governance, uh, healing and spirituality and more. And so that's, that's, that's what most people or a lot of people aren't so familiar with. Um, and so I happen to be trained and really passionate about uh, land management and so that's where I, I specialise. However, a, a big chunk of my life is um, angled at community change projects as well. And so we, as a, a big part of culture and education um, so I layer that design framework into other elements of my work, which often end up working with people and land because that's my two passions. Um, but it doesn't have to. And I think sometimes I do get slammed a bit um, through social media in particular, like, Anna, stick to the gardens when I raise other issues around politics or other um, issues of the times. Um, and, I, I, you know, I understand, but I just patiently explain again and again Permaculture is a holistic design framework that we can apply to different contexts. And, um, you know, if you want a gardening page, here's some other recommendations if you just, just want gardening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and you've got a business, Good Life Permaculture, uh, the same name as the book, by the way, um, The Good Life. So what do yeah. you do for people who engage you as a permaculturist? Great question. So um, I do a range of things. I do... Lots of landscape design work for uh, people in the city or on farms. So I travel around Tassie quite a lot. And then we do, we have like a, lots of um, workshops. So, you know, for teaching people how to grow food or how to keep bees, um, a permaculture design course. So learning that design framework in detail and lots of different things, which is very much hands-on about how to help build, build resilience in people's homes and communities. And then I also do what I just call community change projects, which is, very opportunistic and um, I'll often you know, get a grant from local council or partner with different organisations to do projects around usually um, food systems and community development. So I'll run like an annual edible garden tour around Nipaluna Hobart and 
I'll run composting workshops and all sorts of things just to kind of activate conversations and build skills in the community. So um, I'm quite diverse because I can just see so many things that could be happening. So I, I just place myself in as many areas as I can to help things happen. Can, can you give us an example, I mean, off the top of your head of like someone or a conversation you've had or a workshop where you've run where someone, you can just see the spark go off in someone's eyes oh. and they've just then gone off and really embraced this whole concept? Mm. Yeah, look, I've, I've had the wonderful privilege of having so many students roll through our workshops over the years. So there's lots of lots of experiences that people keep in touch and share with me, which is beautiful. And I think the the best things that come to my mind now, like when we're teaching our permaculture design courses, which are two-week intensives, so they are quite intense, um, people just realising the wonderful capacity that they have in their life in that point in time and how nothing necessarily has to change for them to realise that. It's just a mental shift and go where people go, oh, I'm capable of so much. I can just start doing things right now. I don't have to move to the country. I don't have to change jobs. I don't have to have these huge life changes. I just have to have um, foster that mental shift about how we approach the world. That is like gold to me. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's like really heartening to see people realise that. In your book, Hannah, you say that a good life may be a hard life and uh, talk about working in the hardness and that it sounds like a lot of effort because it is. What makes this way of living hard and is a hard life better? Um, Julie and I have talked a lot about living with intent on this podcast and you kind of you put it as not living by your values is a slow kind of death. Can you elaborate yeah. on that concept? Sure. Yeah, because I think um, people go come to me sometimes like, oh, I want to live the good life. The good life looks so cool and, you know, it's all happy, <laughs> happy, happy and, like, wonderful, good on you. Um also, the good life, uh, how, how we talk about it, is quite, um, quite challenging because you are living by your values and you're centra- centering your values. Um, and when you do that, you straight away come up against the tension that, oh, the, the mainstream culture and world that we live in does not represent what I care about. It's going against those, it's damaging those values. And so a good life to me is actually actively working out how to live your values personally, but then how do you can... Uh, raise the conversation about how we can change the status quo and that's really hard it's a lot of meaningful conversations with people Uh, I recently stopped I used to say difficult conversations but someone pointed out no Hannah change the language to meaningful conversations and that I think that's a good thing to pick up on so there's lots of meaningful conversations with people which can be quite confronting Um, that could be in your family or friendship circles or workplaces and because as soon as you start trying to change things there's a tension where people people don't want normal situations to have to change if they don't want to often and of course our political culture is quite conservative or very conservative (laughs) there's a huge amount of um despair there you know like it's really challenging to live a good life knowing that the system that we are living in is crushing that for most people actively crushing it how devastating, you know. So um, saying all that, I would never want to not live by my values because it is a slow type of death where you just kind of, I, I think about it as being a bit numb. Because I have tried a bit when I was much younger. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just try working a normal job and just fitting in and getting on with it. 
um, and there's a numbness that kind of settles on my chest. I'm like, oh, no, this is not good. This is not a way of life that I can take part in. And so my way of life is I experience all the highs and all the lows and everything in between, and, um, but it's very rich. And so it's, it's not necessarily full of, you know, fireworks and sparks all the time, but I wouldn't have it any other way because it is a meaningful way of engaging in the world. And, and that for you is the good life. Like that yeah. is what makes life yeah. good. Dealing with the hard and the and what you own and you know really understanding what you value and living that. Mm, yeah. And you know, Anta, my partner and I, we have a personally a very rich life in our own homestead and, and lovely little work livelihoods and all the things, but we understand very deeply that it's not good enough. It's not, it's, unless we're all having a good life in our own particular context and our own unique ways, it's, then it's useless, you know. So we, we really have this, love this concept of a good life for all. So it's not just about us, it's about everybody. And so that's both our workplaces try to elevate that conversation and, um, you know, tackle things around justice and equity and, you know, accessibility to different information or ways of living because, um, otherwise it ends up being a conversation had by a few privileged people in the corner while the majority of people just struggle through. Mm. Yeah. But also it's taken you it's taken you some time, right, to find what the good life is for you. Um, mm. And you said like in that answer you were saying how you tried working in an office job and I've also read in your book how you tried working as a frontline activist. Um, you've also worked in the field of community development and you just didn't thrive so it was about finding then what works and that's a journey that everyone you're encouraging everyone to go on find what is your purpose and what makes you thrive and work out what your values are and then Mm. start to live that yeah I think once you kind of clearly articulate your values and I mean write them down it's not just like a vague thought in your brain like write them down stick them on your fridge like things go oh okay things start to clarify I'm like what does that mean for how I actively want to live in the world and um, yeah, and it took me a while, like years, to kind of try different things. And all those things are really great, by the way, but I think it comes back to finding in terms of activism and how you want to be most impactful, what's the best fit for you? And you have to kind of try a few things out, or I did anyway, um, to kind of settle in to go, yeah, this feels good. This feels like something I can do indefinitely and I'm just going to keep going because I was really worried as a young person. I could see activists you know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, burning out and going, okay, I'm done, you know. I'm like, oh, but that's, what do you mean? You can't just not stop caring <laughs> or stop acting on those on those values. So I was really, I'm really quite um, focused on finding a type of activism that I can do forever. That's a really important thing. Talk to us about the concept of radical hope, Hannah, then the need to foster joy. Yeah, yeah, it's so good because, you know, um, the book is, I write about is how to live a good life in the face of a climate emergency and, you know, if anyone's been paying attention to the science reports over the past many decades and our current political trajectory, it's we are not, isn't, we are not in a good situation <laughs> and how do we find hope and joy amongst that, you know? Um, I'm really very committed to not going down that path of doom and gloom, which is a, a mainstream narrative around the climate emergency. I'm like, we cannot afford the luxury to hang out there. We can acknowledge the facts as they stand right now, and then we can throw ourselves at changing the trajectory. Um, and in the process, we have to find that that time and space for love and joy and hope, because otherwise, why are we here? Like, what are we doing? And 
you know, why are we having beautiful babies and gorgeous partners? Like we need to foster that human experience amongst that. And I really think that um, radical hope is something that's helped my brain kind of hold on to that concept. And it's a, it's a, a term I first kind of came across through American authors, Rebecca Solnit and Jonathan Lear, who's a philosopher. And radical hope is about having, um, holding on to, amazing opportunity in the face of huge uncertainty and being the climate emergency in this context and how going look you know it doesn't look good but we're going to do everything we can to change the trajectory knowing that it may not work but we're going to do it anyway because there's a chance that it might and that we hold on to that little slither of gold like how it might work and and you just throw your whole life at it and imagine if we just threw all our lives at it it would just be we're just exploding to greatness <laughs> and so I really um that's a really dear term to me and, and the radical hope it's not it's not a, a fluffy thing in your brain it's like a really active verb it's a way of living it's things that you do not things that you just think about but some days is it just all too hard yeah, yeah. okay good yeah. <laughs> it's oh, just surely some days oh, it's got to be oh, it's just yeah. really hard today no, like totally. Like some days, I just like fluff around in my UGG boots. And I go, I just might watch um, Harry Potter movies today. And that's okay. <laughs> oh, it's like critical. Yeah, actually, um, good. when people say that to me and feel guilty, I'm like, cool. Like, you know, you can't be on all the yeah. time. You, you have to have downtime. For me, that sometimes that's exercising and walking in the bush. But a lot of time it's watching Harry Potter and that's cool. Like that's just, that's totally cool. You've got to rest our brains and allow them to return to a quiet space. Um, otherwise anxiety is real. You know, you'll, you'll twist yourself into knots of all shapes and forms. Yeah, yeah okay, good. That makes me feel better. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. Yeah, it's tiring. Um, now community building, that's a, like, this is a theme again that, you know, in a number of podcast interviews that Ryan and I have done and with both of our backgrounds, we keep coming back to this concept of building community. And you say in your book, building community is a practical, savvy and strategic approach to responding to the climate emergency. Um, yeah. And then you also have this concept of community sufficiency versus self-sufficiency that I thought was quite clever. Um, and so I was keen for you to talk a little bit to us about that. Yeah, I guess, um, Self-sufficiency is something people assume that we do in our own home because we do we do actually grow and produce a lot of stuff here. We've got milking goats and all the things. But we only do that because it's my idea of a good time. I just get weirdly excited by plants and goats. <laughs> um, I'm very uninterested in self-sufficiency. Um, as a younger person, I did work on a couple of farms which were ang- angled at that kind of uh, way of being. And it's such hard work. It's so isolating and it's I think it's actually opportunity for um just being slightly um, malnourished as well if you don't have access to all good like, nutrients like really practical things like that um, I'm really interested in a concept called community sufficiency where uh, you know amongst your own region or state or territory or island you can foster um, all those resources that you need to survive and thrive not just to survive to thrive and of course you can have that apply that to Australia as a country and then, of course, you can still participate in the global trade system in an ethical way, but it's making sure that you have that local resilience sorted first and then you start sharing trading surplus accordingly. Um, and it's it's a really nice brain shift. So we don't try to grow everything ourselves at all. 
we did things like, you know, we set up a little food share stand down the corner and where I can dump surplus carrots, which I just pulled out last week. And, um, you know, I'll pick up some other yummy things that I hadn't thought about growing. And like, there's a nice little informal swapping system going on in our neighbourhood. And I think, you know, that's a, a micro scale example of what can happen. But I think the more we, we start to think beyond our fence lines and go, oh, what can we do as a community, whether that's in your street or in a whole state or territory, things start to get really interesting when we start to think like that. Yeah, I love it. Tell us more about the goats, Hannah. Um, I've seen some wonderful photographs of, of you with your goats and it's quite an involved process, isn't it, to keep some milking goats on your what seems like a smallish suburban property? Yeah, yeah. So we um, our property is actually around 3,000 square metres, so just under one acre, which is big, but uh, it's hugely steep, like so steep our property. So there's no big wide open flat space anywhere. We've got terraces that we grow on and keep our animals on. Um, and so our goats are in a small uh, home yard, which is around 80 square metres, and that's, that's, that's a small space. And it's a, what we call a high input system, which we actually try to discourage in permaculture. Um, because it requires a lot of my time and energy. Um, but uh, the, the the disclaimer is that if you're willing and able and passionate, that can be a really beautiful thing. So I have two milking goats here. I tend to them morning and evening and often in my lunch break for pats and cuddles. <laughs> I happen to work from home. So I've set up a very unique way of life here where it's a high input system, but it's what it, it, it works beautifully because I'm really committed to being here and it's I really get a huge amount of enjoyment from it. So we have Gertie and Jilly who I milk every morning and they're a critical part of our landscape management here actually. So uh, we harvest all their poo for compost. Um, they eat a lot of our weed plants or surplus green waste that we have and um, they're beautiful. <laughs> They bring a lot of joy. It comes back to what brings you joy in life and how can you, you create more space and time for that. So that's I kind of build these things into my my life, go, okay, here is a moment of joy every day and here is something I have to do, but it's actually just really fun, you know. <laughs> so that's, yeah, they're wonderful. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're quite a responsibility and it seems like a lot of the work that you do and a lot of the stuff that you're teaching is actually about taking responsibility for your impact on the world, for the food you eat, for your own happiness, um, which, as we talked mm. about earlier, can be hard because we've become used to such a convenience and not having to take responsibility for things. And mm. I feel like it can be a big turning point for, for people to start taking responsibility. I wonder if you have any advice for them kind of on that point, on the turning point. Yeah, yeah I think it's great to start to think about what can I take responsibility for? And that, so it definitely helps me as a younger person to go, oh, um, for me, food was, food was one of the easier things I could do because I, I was a passionate grower. I'm like, I can take responsibility for this. I think it's important to point out that not everybody can garden or wants to garden or farm and that's cool. You don't have to. But, um, but you can still retake responsibility for where your food comes by from by making um, good consumer choices. You go, yeah, I know the farmer or I know of the grower. You can, you can track where your food's coming from. So I think responsibility doesn't necessarily mean you have to become a full-time grower or gardener or whatever that might be, um, but it, it means that you, you think about things a bit more thoroughly and go, how can I have a meaningful impact with my money that I'm putting out in the world or whatever that might be? And, and that can, you can transfer that to your clothes or the way you transport yourself or the way you build a house if you're building a house, you know. How can you take responsibility for the impact you're having on the world? 
make it a, as beneficial as possible. And that and that requires thought. Like it's you know again it, it comes back to it's this whole thing. It, it's a little it's harder to begin with perhaps. Like it's it's not the easy way out because you do have to think and you do have to do a little bit of research and you do yeah. need to just stop and not get that instant gratification and yeah like I think. But, but by the same token, maybe that's how you wrestle a little bit of control back and that can only make mm. you feel better in the long run, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, I think, it, you know, behaviour change is a, is a thing. You can't just like, you know, do it overnight. It takes time and, and effort and that's you have to acknowledge that not everyone has huge amounts of time just to, you know, the luxury of going, yeah, I'm going to research every element of where my food comes from. Like I don't actually have that time. <laughs> Um, so we have to be mindful that we can't shame people for not being able to do these things. That we go, okay, whatever you can do, that's bloody awesome. If it's just going, okay, I'm going to work out where my milk comes from and nothing else, whatever, whatever that might be, or I'm going to work out where my um, where I buy my socks from. I don't know, whatever is relevant and interesting to you. you go, okay, cool. I'm going to nail this one thing, and I think that's to be celebrated and not shamed about not doing enough because we don't need everyone to be perfect, pure activists. This is a bad, bad conversation that we need to change. That's a, not a good conversation, not a helpful conversation, I should say. It's about doing lots of little things, whatever you can manage in your time and capacity and, and celebrating that. Just going, yeah, I'm doing something. <laughs> I, love, um, I love the happy vibes you put out here. Like it's, yeah. you know, like this is all, like it's, <laughs> it's joyous. And it's exciting yeah. and it's an opportunity and, like, just this is, like, this is yeah. powerful. It ha- kind of has mm. to. Like, um, I don't know how else to um, manage this world without throwing as much love and joy at it. And maybe it's my coping mechanism. Uh, I'm not sure. But I think it's the, it's the only way I've been able to get traction around these conversations in my work and in my community. It's like we're going to make this really fun. This is really hard. This is really big. And if you think about it too much, it's pretty scary. Um, but we're going to have a crack at it anyway and we're going to make this a really interesting and meaningful experience for people. Um, I'm just I'm really committed and I think with my work with um, community development and community projects, you can guarantee 100% more success rate if you make it interesting and fun and we can, if you engage people with um, creativity and with joy. Go, oh, yeah, I want to be part of that thing that you're doing over there compared to um, doom and gloom and fear. They're like, oh, geez, like you might get good clickbait off it, but you don't get good ongoing meaningful engagement from it. And um, so that's a really very conscious decision I've made. Um, and it's, you know, it's heaps more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did read that you had spent some time in the Solomon Islands and I have to go there because oh, yeah. I lived in the Solomon Islands also. <clears throat> and yeah. so um, I'm just wondering if there's anything like you can tell us about your time in the Souls that um, yeah. would be great for our listeners. Well, yeah. Sure thing. Um, what an amazing, beautiful part of the world, by the way. Um, I was there as part of an ongoing project that Rosemary Morrow um, was running. He's a, an incredible permaculturalist and does lots of work throughout the Asia-Pacific region. And I came in just for a few weeks, so very, very brief, to uh, work with some farmers in their training centre in, Honiara, in Honiara in the central city. And, oh, what a joy just to be able to work with uh, really diverse farmers who, who would boat in from all these remote islands. And we 
were exploring permaculture design and how they could apply it to their existing farms and homesteads already to help them. Um, and that included going out to, on boats to really remote little islands and just, oh, you know, going to their local churches and just have these beautiful memories of um, the churches, like tiny shacks with um, looks like mosaics of seashells across every surface and the singing, amazing singing, you know, um, and pineapples everywhere. I was in heaven. <laughs> and I guess a really important thing, I guess, to say that I've, I've, a few times I've been, um, I've been fortunate enough to work in different uh, countries around the world. Uh, I've been as a white person coming in as a white expert, you know, bit of an awkward situation. And the best thing I've found in those situations is if we go highlight the wonderful work that's already happening with the First Nations communities in those regions and elevate that, that those people in that work. And that's probably the best, most useful things I've done in those situations, coming as the expert and just pointed to their local export experts and go, let's hear what they have to say and let's really explore that. So that was, um, yeah, that, that was very much the sentiment of that, that, that trip. And I, I was just thinking, talking about last week, it's a lasting impact on me and about how resilient people are. Like, wow, just so resilient. Yeah, 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 great, perfect. I love it. I love. I could talk about the Solomon's <laughs> forever, but I won't because I know Ryan's keen to get into the <laughs> into the hero questions. Ryan, shall I? Okay. I'll start seeing as I'm talking. Um, okay. so congratulations, Hannah. You've just been elected president of the world. Um, <laughs> what is the one change you try to implement first? Um, okay. So what I would work at doing is centering First Nations voices in every country, everywhere. And I would listen to what they had to say and I would let that conversation guide every policy, every regulation made. And I think we'd see some really interesting things come from that, especially around how we um, manage and use land um, resources. And I think we'd have some incredibly interesting conversations around social justice and healing and that would, how that would roll out into every system and every policy. And I think we would see a lot of... Um, system change and rebuilding of what that could be so to really be led by first nations cultures and people into a way of life which is not like how it used to be hundreds of years ago but a new way of of living together in harmony which is really authentically um, based on justice what about the future hannah it's 2030 describe the world you see around you okay so Every government, every industry authority has committed to um, net zero. We are well, we are over halfway, we are on the path, we are, you know, conservative politics of climate denialism or just just ignoring it is a thing of the past. We do not do that. <laughs> um, and so we have incredible, uh, I guess, investment in industry based around renewable energy or relocalisation we have really, um, you know, wonderful uh, relationships with First Nation communities who help guide that process. Uh, we have really um, tackled things like the housing crisis in Australia. This is just completely out of control. Oh, there's so many things I could get going. I actually looked at this question beforehand. I'm like, oh, shit, I don't know how I can answer this concisely. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, it, we, okay, okay, I, oh, this is my concise answer. Okay, I've got it. We put people... <laughs> and um, planet before profit. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think within that you can unravel everything. (laughs) So who are your environmental heroes? You've mentioned a couple of people in the permaculture movement. Um, Are they they your heroes? Are there others? Like who who really has inspired um, Hannah Maloney? Two people that come to mind is um, Australian Torres Strait Islander man Eddie Marbo, who led the movement to native titles land rights. Um, what a man, you know, just and what a leader for his people and the, the, the ongoing ripple impacts like legally and culturally have been so um, culture changing for Australia. So I just, yeah, it makes my heart go very warm and fuzzy. Big, big, big respect, yeah. And then the other person that came to mind is Vandana Shiva, who's an Indian author and activist and academic. She does everything. Um, she made a huge impression on me in her work to raise the profile of food sovereignty, the peasant farmer movement as well, um, and wildly articulate in communicating environmental justice issues. And I think those two people, um, you know, more locally in Australia and more internationally with Vandana Shiva have just shown me how you can lead with amazing intelligence and joy and be really solution orientated, which is something we don't always see in um, global leaders or local leaders. Like they focus more on the problems of what they don't want. And leaders and pe- people who really inspire me, they're solution orientated, they're solution campaigning. And that's when we start to see real results. What's your hot tip for our listeners, apart from buying your new book, The Good Life, for being more environmentally <laughs> friendly and aware? I think, you know, we've mentioned it a bit already, but really getting in touch with your values and writing them down. I think people go, oh, is that it, Hannah? I'm like, it's actually pretty life-changing if you do it <laughs> and living by that. And from that you'll start to unravel, go, oh, what does this mean for practical daily actions or how, you know, for whatever, you know, university choices you might make or whatever you might want to be doing in your life. Um, you start to make the decisions differently and I think that's really interesting. We can start to tap, like dial in on behaviour change and what drives that and what sustains it. I think I really believe a lot of that comes back to our values, knowing them and living by them. So do that. <laughs> can, your, can your values change over time? So should you constantly yes. revisit? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote some in my book um, knowing that they change. But I, I, I've, some, I've got some really big universal ones there. Like for me, authenticity and justice, love and joy are really big ones. And they're broad enough that it's it's highly likely I'm always going to want to have love in my life or always want to be authentic, yeah? Um, but you could be more specific and, of course, they can involve in change. Like for me, I'm always adding more. I'm like, oh, and I want this one and I want that one. <laughs> um, so I think it's about just having some clarity around what they are and then and then to take the time to go, how do I create more of this or how do I sustain this or how do I maintain this, you know, so, and what does that look like in your particular unique context? Awesome. Um, so our last question is what's your final slogan, quote or mantra that you'd like to leave our listeners oh. with? Yeah, and it's, I, I'm getting my book because it's um, a beautiful quote by Rebecca Solnit who I mentioned earlier and it goes like this. It goes, hope is not a lottery ticket. You can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. It is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency. Crack on get involved, um, vote these people out in our next election, in an upcoming federal election in Australia, move your money out of fossil fuel-based funds, you know, start listening to First Nations people, do what you can in your own homes and communities and things will get better. Local environment heroes, saving the trees.
and the bees and doing it daily.